We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Amen. Emmaus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, My name is Tyler. I am one of the pastors here at Emmaus, and it's my joy and privilege to welcome you uh, to church today. If you would, turn in your Bible with me to Acts chapter 18. We will continue in our series in the book of Acts this morning. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 18. While you're turning there, I would like to invite the illustrious Mr. Sean Stone to come. And Sean is actually, he leads our student ministry here at Emmaus, and he's going to kind of give you an update on what's going on with the students. Yeah, yeah. Good morning, brothers and sisters, um, and any visitors that, you, that w- may be with us this morning. Um, I'm the director of Emmaus Students, and we are beginning to meet again tonight So if you'd like more information on that, if you have a 6th grader through 12th grader, I'll be standing right up here after the service, and we can talk about um, what Emmaus Students does, what we believe, what we're trying to do as a student ministry uh, in correlation to um, the larger body of the local church. Mm -hmm. So um, that's that's one of the things that we strive for, is preparing students for the local church and and life within the local church. So if you have any questions or want to uh, volunteer even, uh, I'll be over here and we can talk about that after the service is over. Thank you so much, Sean. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you for all you're doing with the students and all you do for Emmaus. Uh, You're a blessing. Well, let's turn to our text this morning. Before we read, I just want to recap a few things. If you remember last week, we left off with Paul going back to Antioch for a very brief period of time. Really, for Paul, the church at Antioch is sort of his his home base, if you will. They were his sending church. By this point in the book of Acts, Paul has established a rhythm, a pattern of going out from Antioch on a missionary journey. He'll travel around the Mediterranean world. He'll preach the gospel. He'll make disciples. He'll strengthen the churches. And then he'll return to Antioch to spend time with the church there. And here in chapter 18, we're told that as Paul makes his way back to Antioch, he is traveling with a married couple from the city of Corinth. These are tent makers named Priscilla and Aquila. Paul partners with them in their tent making business, and they partner with Paul in his apostolic ministry. The text tells us that the three of them stop in Ephesus, where it says that there they parted ways. Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind in Ephesus, and he journeys on to Antioch, where he will visit before going out on his third and final missionary journey, which, interestingly enough, will bring him back to Ephesus. And so, as we look today at the ways in which God's mission unfolds in the city of Ephesus, I want you to hear and to heed an invitation. The invitation that I want you to hear and to heed is this. You are invited to join the Holy Spirit on mission. You are invited to join God the Holy Spirit on his mission, the mission that he is about doing in the world. In these verses that we're getting ready to read, 
we see the Holy Spirit working through Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. And then later on, we'll see the Holy Spirit working through Paul in Ephesus. And in both of these cases, the truth of Christ and the power of Christ are brought to bear on people's lives in a profound way. So much so that these people's lives are never the same again. So let's read. We'll begin in chapter 18, verse 24, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Amen. So in these verses, I want you to see that the church is a teacher. Like the, the kind of community that we experience in the local church is a teacher because the church is meant to be a place where our understanding of God's mission can be refined. This is what happened with Apollos. Verse 24 tells us that he was a Jewish man whose hometown was Alexandria. And somehow he had come from the city of Alexandria to the city of Ephesus. Now, the fact that Paul, or that rather Apollos, was from Alexandria actually helps to explain some of the other details that are mentioned about him in the text. Let's look at these details. Verse 24 says that he was an eloquent man, he was competent in the scriptures. Verse 25 says that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So like if you were to, to sit down with Apollos and if you were to have a conversation with him about the things of God, you would quickly draw the conclusion that, hey, this guy is really bright. And that is, at least in part, owing to the fact that he was born and raised in a place that had a reputation for being highly intellectual. Alexandria was located in northern Egypt, where it had been founded by Alexander the Great. And it was a place where people came from all over the world to learn because the city of Alexandria was actually known for having something that was really special. It was known for having one of the world's greatest libraries at that time. In this library, you could spend hours and hours reading works of philosophy and poetry and religion, all sorts of different subjects. So you could imagine that Alexandria was a place where there was a lot of philosophical and theological debate. And it was in this highly intellectual context that Apollos had come to understand 
and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he preached there at the synagogue in Ephesus. As Apollos preached, it was obvious that not only did this man understand the scriptures, not only was he eloquent and competent, but he was also fervent in the spirit. That's what it says in verse 25. Bible commentators will point out that the Greek in this verse includes the definite article before the word spirit. So Apollos was fervent in the spirit, which means that what we should have in mind here is the Holy Spirit. Also in this passage, the Greek word for fervent means to burn or to boil. So it seems like we're meant to see here that the fire of the Holy Spirit was burning white hot in Apollos as he preached. This reminds me of a story about John Wesley, the famous evangelist. The story goes that Wesley was once asked, what makes your preaching so effective? What makes it so successful? Like, do you have a secret? And Wesley very simply responded, and he said, I set myself on fire, and people come to watch me burn. That's how it was with Apollos. Listening to him, you, you could see God's grace was evident in his life. This man knows the scriptures. He's passionate about the way of the Lord. He is on fire for God. I mean, this guy is the real deal. He's the kind of guy that you would want on the ministry team at your church. And yet, there's just one thing. There's one problem with Apollos. One detail that causes his preaching ministry to suffer. Look at the end of verse 25. He knew only the baptism of John. Now that detail is surprising to me. It's kind of a puzzling detail, is it not? Because it's obvious. Apollos had the Holy Spirit. We have established that. So I don't think this is a matter of his status before God. I don't believe it's a matter of his relationship to the Holy Spirit, which means that this is most likely a matter of his understanding. The way Apollos understood God's mission still needed to be ironed out in some significant ways. It still needed to be refined. Someone was going to have to point out to Apollos that now that the Messiah has been crucified and exalted, we no longer take our cues from John the Baptist. John was a tra transitional figure. His job was to get people ready for the Messiah. He said this himself. He said in Luke chapter 3, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And when he comes, he will do the baptizing. This is because John was not the light, but he only came to bear witness about the light, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus who defines the meaning and purpose of baptism. We see this in how Jesus commissions his church to go into all the nations and to preach the gospel to the whole of creation. And whoever believes this good news, we are to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is what Apollos did not yet understand. One commentator explains the situation this way. 
He says, Apollos understood, believed, and preached the gospel of Christ, but he knew nothing of this ordinance of baptism in which the use of water preaches the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila, they see this for what it is. They they understand that that something needs to be said about this. Someone needs to speak into Apollos' life. I can imagine them sitting there at the synagogue and they're, they're listening to Apollos. They're nodding along. Their hearts are, are being stirred as he pleads with people to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. But then something strange happens. Apollos' sermon takes a turn. He starts talking about John's baptism. And as he speaks of the baptism of John... Priscilla and Aquila look at each other and they're like, are you hearing what I'm hearing? This guy, he's rolling with Jesus, but he's got John in the back seat. So what do they do? What do Priscilla and Aquila do? They go to Apollos. Verse 26. They pulled him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now notice a couple of things about this. Notice how they go about this. Notice that Priscilla and Aquila do this discreetly and they do it face to face. They do not make a public performance out of correcting Apollos. Nor do they write him an angry letter and set him straight from a safe distance. No, they get up close And personal, they they meet with Apollos. They, They look him in the eye as a brother in Christ, and they say to him, Apollos, we we think you're you're failing to see the whole picture here. And we would encourage you to reconsider the way you're teaching this. In other words, Priscilla and Aquila correct Apollos, but in their correction, they are both compassionate toward the teacher and convictional about what is taught. There is a lot to learn from here. Emmaus, when your brothers and sisters are in error, yes, you need to point it out. You need to bring clear correction. But even when that is needed, it should be done in a posture of discreet gentleness. It should be done in a way that dignifies the person being corrected. One commentator puts it this way. He says, We should not try to correct our brothers and sisters by using an argumentative, critical spirit. Rather, we need to use an open Bible and a loving tone. Christian, a word of correction is best offered as a loving gift in Christ. It should be what Proverbs chapter 15 calls life-giving reproof. God forbid that it is ever said of Emmaus that we use the truth of the gospel as a club to beat people up. No, our convictions about the gospel should always be voiced in the compassion that we have been shown in the gospel. That's what we see in Priscilla and Aquila. The way that they address Apollos is full of both conviction and compassion, which as it turns out, is a really effective way to go about this. We know this is the case 
because as a result of their correction, Apollos actually becomes a more effective teacher. Verse 27, Apollos goes to Achaia, and it says that his teaching greatly helped the church in that place. Notice something else about this. Notice that by worldly standards, there is a difference between Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. Let me sketch out what I mean by this. Remember, Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers by trade. In other words, they are blue-collar workers. They're, They're probably not very educated. No one in their culture would have recognized them as having any intellectual cred. And then there's Apollos. He, on the other hand, comes from Alexandria. He's most likely highly educated. He has spent his entire life surrounded by books and philosophical debate and oratory genius. Apollos is an intellectual heavyweight. And yet here, we see something surprising. We see something counterintuitive. We see the tent makers instructing the public intellectual. Let me reiterate something that Pastor Matthew touched on in his sermon a couple weeks ago when he preached on Acts chapter 17. Pastor Matthew reminded us that it doesn't matter if you have a seminary degree or a high school diploma. It doesn't matter if you spend your days parsing Greek verbs or if you spend them changing diapers. It doesn't matter if you're a bank teller or an auto mechanic or a distinguished theologian. What all of us need as Christians is to grow in our understanding of what it means to be on mission with God. And in order for that to happen, we need each other. We need to walk together in community because community is where our understanding is refined. You see, the local church is a training ground. It is God's ordained context for your discipleship. Because it is where God has chosen to locate his truth and his wisdom here on earth. This is why Paul says in the book of Colossians that we are to see to it that the word of Christ is dwelling richly in us. So that we can teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. So if the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ are dwelling in you. And that means that I need you. As your brother in Christ, I need you to be on mission with me. If you're a PhD, I need the depth of your understanding about the things of God. There are things about God and his word that you have studied at a depth that the rest of us haven't. And I need you to speak into my life about those things so that my understanding could be refined. Or if you're a stay-at-home mom, who spends your days in quiet faithfulness at home, loving and raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that means that I need what you have to give. Because I have kids too. And I need to know what everyday faithfulness at home looks like. You guys, let's not miss this. Let's not overlook this. I I want you to see that because the Spirit of Christ lives in you, you have something to offer. You matter here. 
Your voice is necessary and valuable for this church. That's the whole reason we gather. We're here today because we need to hear the gospel from one another. That's how God's mission is designed to work. Emmaus, we cannot be on mission with God unless we are on mission with Him together. And the only way that we can do this is by me leaning on Christ in you and you leaning on Christ in me. And it's by doing this that we experience the reality that life in the local church is a teacher. Let's continue to read our text. Begin in chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. The second thing I want you to see today is this. I want you to see that the church is a carrier of renewal. If you are in Christ, you are called to live as a carrier of renewal. Pastor Patrick, in his book, The Mission of the Triune God, says that Acts is a renewal document. He says, the foundations of the ancient church provide the footings for the renewal of the modern church. This means that as we read and study the book of Acts, we actually see what it looks like for the church to experience renewal in the Holy Spirit. But not only that, we also see what it looks like for the church to carry that renewal to the ends of the earth. And what we see here at the beginning of chapter 19 is no exception. In these verses, we see Paul returning to the city of Ephesus where it says he found some disciples of John. And we know that these are disciples of John because they've been baptized into John's baptism. That's what it says in verse 3. Now, if you're paying close attention, something about this may seem a little inconsistent. You may be thinking, okay, well, didn't you just spend several minutes making the case that Apollos was a disciple of Jesus? Doesn't the text say that, that he had only known the baptism of John? But now you're saying of these men in Ephesus that, they were disciples of John when really the text just says the same thing about them. Isn't that a little inconsistent? Isn't that, you know, shouldn't John's baptism mean the same thing in both cases? Well, I think that depends. I think it depends on what else the text tells us. Look at verse 2. It says that these men were ignorant about the Holy Spirit. Paul asks them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And they basically say, we don't know what you're talking about. 
I've never even heard of that. This is what makes these men different than Apollos. Because remember, Apollos, as he preached in the synagogue at Ephesus, he was fervent in the Spirit. It was, it was evident that the power of the Holy Spirit was burning within him. It was like a fire shut up in his bones. So for Apollos, John's baptism was a matter of what he did not know. But for these men in Ephesus, John's baptism was a matter of who they did not know. These 12 men needed the gift of new life. They, they, they needed to experience what Jesus was saying when he told Nicodemus in John 3, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And yet, it just so happens that God has orchestrated things so that these men will cross paths with someone who has exactly what they need. They have been found by a carrier of renewal. Just look at what happens. In verses 5 and 6, it says that Paul baptized them into the name of Christ. And it says that he laid his hands on them. And when he did this, the Spirit of God came down in an undeniable way. Remember what John the Baptist said. I baptize you with water, but the Messiah is coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's that's what's taking place here through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. I mean, up, up until this point, these Ephesian men had only known the baptism of John, but now they were experiencing the baptism of the one for whom John had prepared the way. And there's evidence of this baptism. These men speak in tongues and they prophesy. In other words, what happened in Jerusalem to the 120 on the day of Pentecost was now happening to the 12 in Ephesus. What Christ had promised at the beginning of the book of Acts was continuing to be fulfilled. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And when this happens, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. If you want to know what made Paul such an effective carrier of renewal, the key is right there in the words of Jesus. You will receive power. That is how Paul lived his life. That is how Paul conducted his ministry. In Romans 15, he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by the power of the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 2.4, he says, My message did not come to you in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. To the Thessalonians, he wrote, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Friends, the Apostle Paul learned how to be a carrier of renewal because he lived his life in pursuit of the Spirit and of His great power. He threw himself into knowing and loving God the Holy Spirit. Now you might be hearing this and you might be thinking, well, that's great and everything, but I mean, really, this is Paul we're talking about. Right? Paul is special. 
He's kind of a freak of nature. Right? Me, I, I'm average. I'm a normal Christian. To be honest with you, if I'm being perfectly honest, when it comes to the Christian life, I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to get through the week. If that's what's kind of going through your mind, like, listen, I get that. I understand. And in some ways, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, Paul is special. He's like a Swiss Army apostle. He has a range of abilities and of giftings that you and I will never have. Like, I'll never have the intellect of Paul. I'll never have his energy. I will never have his, his rugged tenacity or his ability to think on his feet. It's, it's true. Paul is a very high-functioning man. But really, at the end of the day, that's all he is. He's just a man. Pastor Josh demonstrated this last week when he reminded us that there were times when Paul was afraid. There were times when Paul was discouraged. It's because Paul was human. Which means that Paul did not need the Holy Spirit any less than I do. Paul, he did not need the Holy Spirit any less than you need the Holy Spirit. Paul's effectiveness as a carrier of renewal did not ultimately depend on his ability. This is because renewal is a work of the Holy Spirit. That, that's how God's mission unfolds. It is only through the work of his Spirit. So we're not looking at Paul today because he and his abilities are the point. No, we're looking at Paul because we want to know the spirit who indwelled him. This should be the greatest desire of every Christian. It should be the great pursuit of our lives to know and enjoy and treasure God the Holy Spirit because there is no other way to live the Christian life than by friendship with the Spirit of the Lord. So this morning, in light of what we've been talking about, I, I want to put a question to you. It's a question that I, I admit, it, it seems a little obvious, right? It seems a little rudimentary, but I think that that's because this is a question that really defines everything about the Christian life, because it's a question that goes to the very heart of God's mission in the world, and that question is this. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who do you understand him to be? What are you believing about him? And, and how does what you believe about him impact your everyday life? I mean, look, we, we've seen in Acts 19 that knowledge of the Holy Spirit is essential knowledge. It is absolutely vital. Those 12 men in Ephesus, they could not experience the Spirit's power until they had knowledge of him. And, and because I want Emmaus to experience the Spirit's power, because I want you to walk in his power, I want to set before you four things that every Christian should believe about the Holy Spirit in order to know him. Because you can't know someone personally until you believe what is true about them. So four things about the Holy Spirit. And I'll close with these four things. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a divine person who is co-eternal with the Father and the Son. The most basic assertion 
of the Christian worldview is that there is one God. And this one God exists eternally as three distinct persons. God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And since these three persons are one God, we do not divide them from one another as if they were three gods. At the same time, since the one God really is three persons, we do not confuse them as if the persons are not distinct from one another. So God the Holy Spirit is one with God the Father and God the Son, but he is also distinct from them. We see this in John 15, 26, where Jesus speaks of the Spirit proceeding from the Father. In John 14, 26, Jesus says that this proceeding spirit is sent in his name. This is why when we recite the Nicene Creed together as a church, we confess our belief in the Holy Spirit who is Lord and life giver, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. This way of talking about the Spirit reminds us that He is a divine person who is from God because He is of the triune God and He Himself is God. He was there at the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that before the world was formed and ordered, the Spirit of God was present and He was hovering over the face of the waters. Friends, I want you to see the implication of this. If we look at this in light of the full counsel of the Word of God, the implication is that the Spirit is coexistent with the Father and the Son as one God, and He proceeds eternally from God as a distinct person. Number two, the Father and His ascended Son give the Holy Spirit to the church as divine power and presence. Not only does the Spirit proceed from God eternally, He also proceeds from God into human history as the Father and the Son pour out the Spirit upon the church. And this outpouring is the very thing that sets the church apart from any other institution. It's what sets us apart from any other group or organization on the face of the earth. What sets us apart is that we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus told his disciples that he would depart from them and go to the Father. John 16.6 says that sorrow filled their hearts. Because they didn't realize what that meant. They did not realize that they would receive a gift that is greater than any other. They They didn't realize they would receive the gift that is the entire premise of the book of Acts. The book we're studying. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's one thing to have Jesus walking beside you. The disciples experienced that. No doubt it was wonderful. But it's an even better thing to have Jesus living within you. Which is why Jesus told them, it is better that I go away because it means that you will not be left as orphans. No, I will come to you, says Jesus, when the Holy Spirit is given in my name. We see this in what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4. That Christ redeemed us to receive adoption as God's children. 
And because we are his children, his sons and his daughters, he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts through whom we cry, Abba, Father. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, Christ makes a home for the believer in the presence of the father. But the spirit makes a home for the father and the son in the believer. Friends, hear me when I tell you this. If you are in Christ, he has withheld no good thing from you. You lack for nothing because the power and the presence of the triune God are yours through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Number three, it is the work of the Spirit to make the Son and his glory known to the world. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, even though the world will no longer see me, you will see me. And he says that this is because you will receive the spirit of truth. For every person who has ever walked the face of the earth, this is their greatest need. The greatest need of every person is to see Jesus Christ. Not just to see him the way that I see you right now with my my physical eyesight, but to see him in the way that the book of Hebrews describes him. As the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the divine nature. This is why in the Nicene Creed we confess Jesus as light from light, true God from true God. And it is by knowing Jesus in this way that we are transformed When we behold his unending glory, when we perceive his divine radiance, it transfigures us into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. And yet the greatest tragedy of a fallen world is that sinful humanity, left to its own devices, cannot perceive the glory that we are speaking of today. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that this is because the God of this world is working to blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing Jesus for who he truly is. And the only way for this to be remedied, the only way that that anyone can perceive the glory of Christ is by the work of the Holy Spirit Ephesians 1.18 tells us that it is the Spirit who enlightens the eyes of our hearts. That's what He does. That is His work. That is why He is present in your life. That's why we sang earlier, O Spirit, lift our eyes to Jesus. Those words remind us of what the church has historically affirmed. That the Spirit is the great illuminator who opens eyes that are otherwise dim in the face of true glory. One theologian says that by the Spirit's illumination, we see light from light in light. Yes, it is the Spirit's good pleasure, friends, to be our illuminator who makes known the glory of Jesus to the world and to us. Number four. Through the church, the Holy Spirit is on mission to bring the world into an eternal state of renewal under the reign of the triune God. Just as the Spirit 
hovering over the face of the waters, was presiding over creation at the very beginning. So he is here with us right now, presiding over the spread of his new creation. Friends, the the gift of the Spirit is an eschatological gift, meaning it is his mission to see the whole world covered with the knowledge of the glory of God, just as the waters cover the sea. And when the Spirit accomplishes this, When he does what he has set out to do, we will hear those words that our hearts have been aching for. God will speak from his throne. And as he wipes the tears from our eyes, he will say to us, Behold, I am making all things new. I am renewing everything. So if this is true, if it's true that the Spirit is on mission to renew the world, And if it's true that he is indwelling us, his people, the church, then that means we are invited to join him in that mission. God's purpose is that every saint would be a carrier of the Spirit's renewing power. And because that's who you are in Christ, because that's who he has made you to be, you need more than anything to know the Holy Spirit and to love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Church, would you pray for that with me? Let's bow our heads. Father, for your people, grant to us that we would walk in the fullness of the gift that we've received in Christ, the gift of your spirit. Lord, we love him. He is precious to us. And so we want to know him more is why we ask in Christ's name that you would help us to do that. We pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.